0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep means. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Winfield Bevins, an internationally recognized author, teacher, and coach. He is director of church planning at Asbury Seminary and co-founder of Healthy Rhythms Coaching, which is a global online coaching and training platform to help leaders thrive. He has helped train leaders in over 20 nations and six continents and frequ- frequently speaks at conferences, seminaries, and universities on a variety of topics. His writing and research explores the intersection of tradition, innovation, and the future of the church. He has authored several books, including Ever Ancient, Ever New, The Allure of Liturgy for a New Generation, and Marks of a Movement. And his most recent book, which releases today, Liturgical Mission, The Work of the People for the Life of the World. In today's conversation, we talk about how Winfield first encountered liturgy and the journey he has been on since then, and of course, his new book, Liturgical Mission. Let's listen. Winfield, welcome back to the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm so happy to have you here today.
1: Hey, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me, Heidi.
0: Yeah, so it's always good to talk to you. Today, we're going to be, among other things, talking about your new book that releases September 20th, Liturgical Mission, The Work of the People for the Life of the World. So I'm really excited to get into that. But before we do that, just want to get to know you a little bit in case listeners haven't listened to the the previous podcast that you've been on as well. Um, How did you first encounter the liturgy?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, some people Some people come at the liturgy in two different ways. Some people experience it. They'll visit a liturgical church. They'll are, like liturgical curious, I call them. You know, maybe they're coming from a low church, evangelical or Pentecostal charismatic background, and they'll just—they're curious, and they'll go visit a church. Others will kind of read their way into it. You know, they'll kind of read about liturgy. You know, maybe stumble across it through, you know, church history or sorts. And that was kind of my experience. I came across um, the, you know, the Book of Common Prayer and kind of started using uh, some of the liturgical resources, kind of my own private prayer time. And I was drawn toward. the eucharist in particular the lord's supper you know in the background i had been raised in lord's supper's like you know what once a year you know maybe, <laughs> right. maybe a quarterly or something <laughs> like and i just felt like that was wrong you know there was something in me that longed for a more regular encounter of the lord's supper and the eucharist and that kind of led me toward the liturgy and I'd, in discovering it was like wow there's a whole treasure chest here of riches that actually form us for how we live our daily lives and do mission. Um, you know, there's some other things I just, you know I discovered other elements like the creeds um, were really helpful for me uh, in terms of like succinct summaries of the Christian faith. Um, but yeah, I kind of I would describe it as I read my way in. I'd never even really attended a liturgical service. I, I will say this uh, in seminary, uh, I. I did stumble in on a Wednesday afternoon to a little liturgical noon Eucharistic service. And there were like four little old ladies in there <laughs> and the minister. And I was like, what is going on? you know, And a lady helped me kind of fumble through the prayer book. Yeah. And it was kind of foreign to me. But I knew that there was something powerful happening. There was something meaningful that was missing in my kind of, you know— Outward missional kind of church planning experience, yeah. you know.
0: Yeah, because you've described yourself, I think, as from a low church background, kind of. Yeah. So then, it's interesting to me now, like the the low church background, and now you're writing a book about liturgy. Yep. So, like, what did you find that the liturgy had to offer you that you needed?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating because I've I've actually researched this. So one of my earlier books was "Ever Ancient, Ever New: The Allure of Liturgy for a New Generation," which we may have done a podcast (laughs) on. I have, yeah. Um, And I think, yeah, I think one of the things I've discovered is there's a whole. I'm not alone. I think it, you know, for some people it might look like an isolated phenomenon, but there are, I mean, thousands, maybe millions of people. around the world, North America, that are hungering for depth and substance and formation. And like I described, maybe they're in a low church background that doesn't really value the sacraments, and they're longing for all that the church has to offer. And the way I describe people that maybe are coming from a more kind of free church or evangelical or even charismatic, spirit-filled background. It's not a rejection of those things. It's a fuller embrace for all that the church has to offer. It's like a treasure chest where uh, that belongs to us all. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, yes, let's have the preaching of the word. Hallelujah. I'll get happy clappy with you, but give me the Lord's table, you know. Yeah. And um, I describe it in the book as... You know a lot of a lot of people historically call it word and table, mm-hmm. where you have preaching, but then you have the Lord's table each week, and they go together, they're not diametrically opposed and if good preaching should prepare and move people toward the Lord's table,
0: yeah. Yeah, you talked about in the book, too, that your own church planning experience, you were also exploring, like, more of the liturgy with them and going on Mm -hmm. the journey with them. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah,
1: I mean, so that was the fun, well, fun, challenging part As (laughs) yes, it, it kind of started with my own personal journey of longing and, like, looking for roots, looking for, again, Kind of a, a more sacramental expression. So we had planted a church plant, served a bunch of surfers on an island, and all these people came to faith. And it was like, what are we going to do with them? <laughs> you know, how are we how are we going to make disciples? And so a lot of it really happened, boots on the ground. Um, the church took the journey with us, with me and my wife, and. We just kind of journeyed together, and it started—one of the ways we implement this is where I tell churches, like, how do we even begin if we're wanting to kind of engage more in liturgy? You know, it started with the church year, the church calendar, and the liturgy is connected to this annual rhythm that's called the church year. So a lot of us know about Easter and Christmas, but there's actually a season leading up to Easter and Christmas, so uh, the season of Advent prepares you— um, for Christmas, so Christmas doesn't just happen. There's a season of watching and waiting and preparing your heart. And the cool thing is, for families and churches, there are practices that can you can do in the home, you know. And there's so it's a discipleship. The way I see the church calendar, it's like this annual discipleship rhythm of following Jesus through the church year.
0: Yeah.
1: In the season of Lent, it's forty days of fasting and praying, preparing your heart for the resurrection of Jesus. What, what could be better than that? <laughs> you know, like, okay, 40 days I'm going to just commit to just seeking the face of Jesus. You know, praise God. Like, we can all get around that. Yeah. And those rhythms are connected to the liturgy. They're connected to kind of a more historic understanding of Christianity. One of the things I kind of argue, again, coming out of my own experience and what I've seen from others, is those rhythms form us for mission, you know, in a real powerful way.
0: Definitely one thing about the liturgical calendar that I learned recently was about Easter tide. So I always thought that Easter was a day and I learned that it's a little season. It's
1: a little mini season, yeah. After
0: Easter and it made me very excited.
1: Well you've heard about like Christmas, same thing as like, you know, on the second day of Christmas <laughs> Yeah, you know, like like there's a little mini Christmas season. So Christmas season isn't what happens before Christmas Day. It's christmas day and leading up to and so Mm. you can celebrate the birth of jesus for and the funny thing is the shops and the stores you know as soon as christmas day hits they're like setting up for like valentine's day or whatever they're on to the next and what i love about the church calendar is it calls us to a different rhythm than the world
0: oh that's true you know
1: it's like it calls us out of secular time and it it kind of sanctifies time it kind of reminds us that we belong to the church calendar we belong to a different kingdom if you will yeah yeah oh,
0: I hadn't thought about it that way yeah. that's it, That's good. And
1: the Easter tide, yeah, the celebration just begins on Easter, you know? It's like fasting and feasting. Or not fasting, you're feasting, and you know, then after yeah, going through a, a period of fasting. I can't
0: yeah. be wrong about this. But I think Easter tide is 50 days and Lent is 40. And so I was, so to me yeah. I was like, oh, we get to celebrate 10 days longer. Yeah, than, there you, you go. Know, it's, we get to it's
1: a celebration yeah. and it's and the neat thing is when you follow those if you really take 40 days of Lent serious, yeah. when Easter comes, the meaning it it is so profound, and it's like you've you've been waiting, and um, Holy Week is the the week before Easter where you're kind of following Jesus to Good Friday is it's all leading up to the crucifixion, and then when the resurrection hits, it's like wow. It's it's a very cathartic.
0: Interesting. Yeah. 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 You know, I've never done Lent. This coming year might be the. I mean, I always knew what happened. Yeah. But as far as and, giving something up or yeah. adding extra study of Scripture. Because some people talk about maybe not give something up, but like take extra time to study the Bible or something. I'm. Thought lot yep. about doing those things, never actually been you disciplined know, to talking, do it. While we're talking, that
1: could be the next book that I write is, um, <laughs> you know, like, following the church, like, literally, like, maybe that's the book you write is, like, someone who's never followed it follows the church calendar for a whole year, like, all the feasts, fasts, all of it, and kind of experiences yeah. it and documents it. Maybe I that's think, your book.
0: I don't know about that, <laughs> but maybe we should co-write it. Yeah, there <laughs> you go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. could be fun. Yeah. yeah.
0: So why was now the right time to write liturgical mission? Uh,
1: you know, honestly, it, it's—the um, significant thing for me is in many ways this is—it's um, not just a book. It's not just an idea, but it's—I've I've written on, you know, a, a variety of—in ty- many mm-hmm. ways this is a culmination of—and maybe this sounds weird because I'm not trying to say like I'm— a thought leader or like this old guy that has all this wisdom. <laughs> but in many ways, liturgical mission is the culmination of several decades of doing mission and ministry and working mm-hmm. with thousands of leaders around the world and mm-hmm. um, kind of the my personal kind of vision and theology of, of ministry and mm-hmm. mission of mm-hmm. how um, we are called, I believe, to do To live out our faith in a way that's rooted and grounded, that's not compromising the historic Mm -hmm. Christian faith, but Mm -hmm. we can do it in a way that's vibrant and contextual and reaches the next generation. I tell these stories in fresh stories throughout the book. I sprinkled the book with some great, great stories of churches that are doing this in kind of fresh, innovative ways um, that are reaching people in their local context in a way that's liturgical, but it's also missional and contextual.
0: Yes, yes. You're leading me right into my next question because, um, I mean, obviously, since I'm learning about the church calendar, I I didn't know a whole lot about liturgy. So I didn't know that the original meaning of liturgy meant the work of the people. But now when we think about it, at least in my mind, and you talk about it in the book, it kind of refers to the corporate acts of worship. So how can we... How can we help our liturgy lead us to service in the world? Because it's a both and, you know. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Again, like the, you know, there's a stereotype that oh, liturgy's just some priest or somebody up on a you know platform, kind of reciting. But but it's a it's a it's a back and forth. It's a call and response. And the the intent of liturgy is to where we all play a part. It's like a divine drama where we all like are called to reenact these holy moments in the life of Christ, and we hear and we're immersed in scriptures. And the practices of the liturgy, really, they, they form us, that praying some of these prayers week in and week out, they sink down into our hearts and our minds. And, um, you know, when we had made this shift, there was a couple that— you know, a young couple that you know, they're like, I don't know what we think about this liturgical stuff. Right. And one of the ways we started was just simply we started with just reciting the Lord's Prayer every week. mm mm-hmm. And for some people it's like, why you know, that's Catholic. You know, <laughs> we're like, why are we doing that? I'm like, well, no, this is the prayer that Jesus gave. This is the family prayer, if you think right. about it. the Lord's Prayer is prayed all around in every um You know, it's prayed all around the world uh, in every continent uh, in thousands of languages. Mm -hmm. It's the most multicultural global prayer on the planet, and it's a prayer that Jesus gave us. And so this young family, I remember I had come to Asbury, you know, when we left our church, and I got a text one day with a little video of their son who was about two—he was maybe three, four at the time— And she said, thank you, Pastor. We get it now. And it was a little video of their son saying the Lord's Prayer from heart. And he had picked that up through the rhythms of the liturgy, and they got it. And that's what's beautiful about the liturgy. It gives us handles. It gives us prayers. Um, We hear the Word. We sit at the feet of Jesus, hear His Word, but we also come to His table. We're fed, and then we're sent out on mission.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What is the connection— between liturgy and mission to like...
1: Yeah, it's it's. It, it, I would say there's a missiological orientation of the liturgy. And again, not to like bore people with the... <laughs> but it is an Asbury Seminary <laughs> podcast. Um, everything about the liturgy moves us toward mission. So there's these four movements. All right, mm-hmm. I, I kind of talk about it, the chapter, I call it the symphony of liturgy. There's yes. these four grand movements where... We are called from the world. Wherever we live in our city or town or community, we gather together. Mm-hmm. And as we gather together, uh, we worship, we pray, then we hear the word of God. Mm-hmm. Right? This is normal in most churches. Yes. Um, and the word, you know, we're fed, you know, we're, we, we hear the word, and then we move toward there's a time of confession, there's a sermon, there's a time of confession, we will typically recite a creed, and then it moves toward the Lord's table. And so the Lord's table, we're reminded every week that it's not our table, it's the Lord's table. And we're all, regardless of the color of our skin, race, nationality, we are all invited uh, and reminded at the Lord's table that it's its kind of like – it's, it's, it, it's, it's a symbol. It's a sign of the kingdom. It's an eschatological sign of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so we should be reminded, if we, if we understand what's going on, we're reminded that we, um, the bread, the body, what we're partaking in, we are called to take that back out into the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you, you know, again, forgiveness of sins, the Lord's Prayer, even if you think about the Lord's Prayer, I have a prelude in there, which is the kingdom prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a missional prayer. Mm-hmm. Our Father, who art in heaven, mm-hmm. hallowed be your name. And it's our, it's a it's a corporate understanding. And give us this day our daily bread. So when we're praying that, we're praying it not for us only, but for the whole world and for other believers. So we're being reminded forgiveness, you know, forgive our sins as we forgive others. We're reminded of that's a missional thing. And it's all leading toward... The climax is the Lord's table, and then at the very end, the, the Latin mass, the Catholic mass, comes from—it's that. called mass because it comes from the term misa, which means go, you are sent, where those early ministers, the end of the service, we've come, we've heard the word, we've fed at the table. Then the minister in the early church would declare, go, you are sent on mission. And misa is where we get our word mission. And so part of it is recovering the meaning of these movements. And so in a liturgical service, it ends with the blessing, where the minister blesses and sends the church out to go in peace, to love and serve the Lord. And so we're sent back out on mission.
0: Oh, that's fascinating, Winfield. That, is that cool? really is. That's really cool. And it makes things uh, so much... More meaningful, I think. Even yeah. just listening to you talk yep. about it,
1: yeah. And part of it's just knowing the me, and that's what I'm trying to do in the book. It's not just a, a book on me- but I'm trying to explain what you know those movements are for people. And if you think of it, most and again, I'm not anti any type of church or right, denomination for sure. But most very contemporary services, big box services, you come, you hear kind of a rock show concert. Then you hear a fabulous sermon when that sermon so great like what the preacher preach on i don't know but it was awesome <laughs> did, did it have anything to do with the bible i don't know there was like a verse you know well in a liturgical service you get like five passages of scripture you're getting right. you're getting the bible crammed down your throat and it's not watered down you're getting the old testament you're getting a psalm reading you're getting an epistle then it climaxes with uh, a gospel reading every yeah. sunday Five, you know, you're getting the word. And the sermon may or may not have been great, but you're going to get Jesus at the table. (laughs) (laughs) And again, if you think of a lot of like big box contemporary services, you get a great laser light show, you know, service, you get a great sermon, and then boom, you're gone. Like, all right, we'll see you next week. It's all about the Sunday show. Whereas in a liturgical service, it's all moving toward mission and being sent back out into the world.
0: So you talk about living kind of the sacramental life once we're sent back out yes. into the world and developing that rhythm mm-hmm. in our daily lives. What There isn't a one way to do this, but what can that look like? How do you incorporate the liturgy into the daily ebbs and flows of life?
1: Yeah. Um, again, I... Well, there's several things that I could say here. Um, One, I could talk about like actual practices of prayer, like morning and evening prayer is connected to these liturgical rhythms. Mm -hmm. So you could pick up a book of common prayer. There are various versions. Uh, Other traditions will have books, you know, um, where I've got a little thing that I've done that it's done really well with Seedbed. It's a field guide to daily prayer. Yes, yes, I remember that. Yeah, and it's a nice little cardboard, you know, uh, it's kind of a little scout book. It's you know, it's inexpensive, but it's just a simple little intro. So that, you know, but those rhythms of morning and evening prayer throughout the week are connected to the weekly uh, liturgical calendar, scripture readings that are connected to that annual cycle. Oh, okay. so it's all interconnected, uh-huh. and it's kind of like so. I've got I wear like an old school kind of Timex watch. Yes. yes. And I remember when I was a kid, like, I had a watch and I, I ripped the face of it off and the cogs of the, the watch, you know, you have all these little cogs working mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how the liturgy is. There's all these interconnected things that are all moving us toward uh, following Jesus. So our daily worship practices are connected to a weekly rhythm that's connected to a seasonal rhythm that's connected to these annual rhythms. So that's kind of one way to look at it. Um, the other kind of thing is, again, by feeding at the Lord's table every week, it's it reminds us of the sacramentality of our own dinner table and our own call to hospitality. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is inviting us to come around his table. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a metaphor for if you look at how the early church did evangelism, and I look at this in the book, where hospitality was evangelism in the early church. Mm -hmm. That's how they did it. They weren't doing street crusades. Oh, for sure. You know, um, you have these passages like on the day of Pentecost, you know, Peter's doing this thing. But if you look at these numbers being added daily, them meeting in in the believers' homes, Mm -hmm. breaking of bread... Um, the apostles' doctrine, you know, the prayers, the, you know, this stuff's happening in in around people's dinner tables mm-hmm. in the home, and that's how they did mission. And so I think we, we you know, I have a chapter on the sacramental life. Like, the sacraments actually inspire mission. Yes. And so um, even our own baptisms, it's kind of like in a lot of low church traditions, kind of like— well, I was baptized, you know, 20 years ago, whatever. Well, it, what's neat in the liturgical churches, they're like Easter, and there are certain times where the minister will come out and he'll sprinkle people with water and say, remember your baptism. Oh, you know, we really cool. We're to, we're to remember that and kind of renew those baptismal vows. And in many ways, I've heard it said this, that our baptism is like our, everyone every believer's great commission. Like we're all kind of set apart in our baptism mm-hmm. um, for ministry and mission. So anyway, there, in the sacraments, there's a lot of like mission stuff. Yeah. We just don't know about it, you know, and it's there. And I've been fascinated digging into it. Like, wow, the meaning of this, it yeah. all points toward mission.
0: Yeah. How is that kind of that digging in? How has it deepened your own faith?
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the neat thing about, like, why I write books. <clears throat> and if you'll see my books, I you know, all my books are about different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just become fascinated about something that, like, is changing my life. And I'll study it, and I'll pray about it, and it'll be transformed, and I'll end up writing a book about it. That's <laughs> yeah. so cool, Winfield. Yeah. So that's I just cool. write about what I love and I'm passionate about at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, one of the things... There were several things, but one of the things that stood out to me in the book that I read, um, you said, additionally, this formation of like going to church, engaging with the body of Christ, engaging in the sacraments, um, it's not contingent on our mood or temperament when we enter the service. That I was like, oh, that's key for me, because I'll be honest, I'm not always in the best mood on Sunday morning, because I'm getting up a little early. Anyway, I'm not super early, but I'm not always in the best mood, and it was just encouraging to me that it didn't depend on me and I mean yes, yes it can help it's big. Yep. but it was a real encouragement that it didn't depend on me, yeah. yep. that I, it was still like the power of God and the power of story of the liturgy yes. and of the service could yep. still connect with me no matter what. Um, And so then your quote went on to say, simply by agreeing to participate and join with the existing structures and rhythms, liturgy has the power to change us. And that was part of the chapter that was talking about liturgy as a story. Like, Yeah. And so my question then is, what is the power of the Christian story, and then Mm, why is rediscovering that so important?
1: Yeah, honestly, if I could redo the book, I would have put that as chapter one, not chapter two. Oh,
0: Okay. Chapter Why?
1: one ended up being like an overview of the movement of mm-hmm. the recovery because um, that is what's missing in most low church contemporary worship services. It's, it's so disjointed. Every song's about whatever the song's about, the sermon's about whatever the preacher wants to preach about, the scripture, it may change from week to week, or if there's a series, it's whatever the preacher thinks he should preach on, mm-hmm. like, hey, we're going to talk about X yeah. you know, this week, whereas... Um, like I mentioned, what's missing is a lot of Christians have lost their place. They don't know the narrative. A lot of younger- I mean statistics show this. If you look at Barna's research, uh, you know, among kind of emerging adults, you have um a lot of young adults do not know the the gospel story. and therefore, they don't know their place in God's story. We've we and what worship does? What liturgical worship does? It re-narrates us. All I mean, five passages of scripture every week, mm-hmm. and they're all kind of moving with a general rhythm. It immerses you. So, like a uh, an Easter vigil, you come in and the minister. Now, this is high church stuff, but you know, th- there there's going to be this. You know, the, the, they're going to light the, the Christ candle, and you'll come into the church. Everyone kind of files in together silently, and the church is dark. And the scriptures, it's a long service. This is the evening before Easter. Okay. And the scriptures are all kind of moving t- from creation, fall, moving toward redemption. Mm-hmm. And then gradually the lights begin to rise. And you know, then comes the, you know the Easter story, and then then the hallelujahs kind of come out. And at that point, you're the celebration, you've walked through right. this narrative, this grand narrative. And again, each week, here's what I love about the liturgy. Um, each week you're getting the Lord's table, mm-hmm. regardless of what the preacher preaches on. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how many of us have been to churches where the sermon series is on, I don't know, um, you, you tell me, it could be on anything, you know, like, <laughs> right. you know, it could be on basket weaving, you know, and, <laughs> but we're going to take a break from the sermon series next week and we're going to preach on the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And then it goes back to tithe and offering or whatever the sermon right. series is right, right. on. But by following the church year, by following that whole season, mm-hmm. there's a narrative you're being reminded that you belong to this larger narrative, which is the, the story of God. Right. And each week, regardless of the sermon, you're getting the gospel presented at the Lord's table. Every week you're reminded that Christ has died for you.
0: Yeah, and that you're part of a bigger story.
1: It, the creeds. Every, right. we, what the creed is, the Apostle Nicene creeds, these are the earliest—the early church Especially the Apostles' Creed. People argue over the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed was developed by the early church. Mm -hmm. It's factual. Mm -hmm. And it was—these were agreed upon by early Christians as the authoritative core uh, doctrines in the Bible. So it's the summary of the story. And every time you recite that, week in and week out, you're joining your voice with millions and millions of Christians throughout the ages yeah. to say this is what we believe. Yeah. This is the story that I believe in.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think that's powerful and I yeah. think that's something we need to regain.
0: That's beautiful. That really is beautiful when you think about all the history that has gone in to the creeds, to the Lord's Prayer. I mean the Lord's Prayer is from Jesus, so you know yeah, there's that. Yeah. But...
1: <laughs> but it's been passed down. Right, right. And, and and it's it's uh this stuff is multicultural. This all of this predates any, quote, Western captivity of the church, Right. the Lord's Prayer, the creeds. This was developed, you know, this came from, you know, the ancient Near Eastern world. Mm-hmm. This is before there were any European Christians. There were, <laughs> you know, there were no, like, you know, I mean, think about it. There were no Americans. There yeah. were no, you know, this, this was developed. These, these early doctrines and practices were developed in the early church, which was mm-hmm. ancient Near Eastern, mm-hmm. and that, that's exciting. Um, I did a thing last year for the Evangelical Mission Society where I did, we did two, two liturgies for mission, and I've got one in the back of the book. And one of the cool things that we did was we had, <clears throat> I believe, 7 there's seven lines in the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. and we had two services— with seven different languages spoken in each service. So the Lord's Prayer was done in 14 languages.
0: Wow, that's really awesome. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. yeah. And that's a
1: picture of the vastness and the unitive uh, possibilities of Recovering Liturgy, which I have a chapter on yes. unity and mission. Yes. Yeah.
0: Some people—you mentioned it in your book—some people say that the liturgical movement is more of a white phenomenon, but um, why does liturgy interest all people?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is what's exciting is, like, for—I documented part of my own personal research is looking at multi-ethnic and global churches that are engaging in liturgy and sacraments, and— There are movements in North America, for instance, of leaders. I tell one story of one church up in New Jersey that I've looked at um, in in the book, Mia Chang's the the pastor. She's a first-generation female Asian-American Christian, Mm first-generation Christian, Mm -hmm. and uh, ended up—her family came to faith. She planted a church, and she has 20-something nationalities in the church. And the words of the liturgy bring—they're not comfortable praying— um, in their own language because there's, they're not really comfortable typically even because English isn't their first language. Right, right, right. But these liturgical prayers have been really powerful for them to bring people together. Yes. Uh, I tell the story of, you know, there's a whole movement of these Afro-Latino Pentecostal churches that are like, you know, the preaching's, you know, gospel-oriented, the music's going to be upbeat tempo, but... When it comes to Lord's Supper, you're like, "Wow, am I in a Catholic church?" Like <laughs> it goes high church all of a sudden, and yeah. it just breaks all categories. But those fourfold structures that I mentioned earlier, those rhythms, um, th- these churches are going to have those same rhythms in their worship service, yeah. but they're going to contextualize that. That's the beauty of—think of liturgy—now, think of, think of liturgy. now, not everyone's going to agree with what I'm saying. You're going to have, like, high church snobs that are going to be like, well, that's not correct. You know, <laughs> right. it's like, you know, this, it has to be this way, kind of like the King James-only argument. Um, but what I would kind of say is the liturgy is kind of like a structure, not a straitjacket, mm-hmm. to quote myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it kind of gives you a framework um that that this is this framework is how the early church worshipped. And these elements, if those elements are there, I believe that there's a lot of room for to contextualize and to be creative within the framework of, of the liturgy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Sometimes there's a bifurcation, I like that word. Yeah. Of the gospel in which we have Evangelism over here and then social social action yep. over here. How does the liturgy help us understand in a new way what it means for the church to be in the church?
1: Yes, yeah. I think yeah, there's you know, I do a little piece on word and deed and kind of I, I think that's one of the beauties of the liturgy is again these words shape and form us. And um Oftentimes, the liturgical prayers can be powerful ways to shape and reorient us toward gospel centered justice issues and holistic mission. We're reminded, again, even in the Lord's Prayer, our confessions um, of the needs of others and the injustices that are in the world. And so, liturgy can be a powerful tool to name. Um, systemic evils and to pray against um, you know unjust structures and and it gives us language that oftentimes we don't have like mm-hmm. for instance you know just in my own tradition the Book of Common Prayer you know there are prayers for social justice there are mm-hmm. prayers for government there are prayers for um you know see, you know there's a prayer and for I forgot how the right word but through seasons of social unrest yes. And I remember, you know, uh, you know, a year into the pandemic was like, is the world going to end? <laughs> like, you know, oh my God, there's a pandemic, and then the, everyone's so divided. The you know, the politically, and all of these things. And there were prayers that actually helped me pray these prayers to be like, oh wow, there are literal. If you get to like 1662 prayer book. Book of Common Prayer, there are prayers about pandemics in there because those were normative. And for a lot of us in contemporary society, yes. we're like, what is a pandemic? Isn't that right. something that happens, you know, uh, somewhere on the other end of the world? No, this a global pandemic, we're all a part of it. And there are prayers that have been written that give us language yeah. for, these, for these difficult moments. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I would say is... A lot of like contemporary worship is like happy clappy, everything's yeah. good, everything's going mm-hmm. good, I'm feeling good, me and Jesus is my boyfriend, <laughs> you know, like and no. You know, if you look at these great prayers and I have some of them in and, and you know, the church is divided, let's be honest. Yeah. And there are prayers for the unity of the church and yeah. there are things that I think can unite us. I believe the recovery of liturgy. I'm throwing my cards on the table. Here's my bias. I think that, I think that the recovery of liturgy holds a promise to bring Christians together from across traditions and backgrounds. If we could have some common language, some common frameworks, yeah. doesn't mean uh, we all have to do the exact same thing and we all mm-hmm. have to dress the exact same way. But I think by recovering some of these historic elements, it can it can create a, a genuine ecumenicism. Uh, my friend Emilio Alvarez calls it an ecumenicism of the spirit. Yes. and I love that because I think the Lord is doing something in our day through the recovery of of liturgy and sacraments. There's a hunger. I think it's not just some isolated phenomenon. I think the Lord is doing something in it yeah. and it's global, it's mm-hmm. multicultural. it's it doesn't matter the color. Of, this is what I love about. It. it does not matter the color of your skin liturgy i think is for everyone because it points us to jesus
0: right and i love how you well i love the hope in what you just said too the hope for the church but i also love like thinking about some of the justice issues how it connects it connects to creation care you know uh, yes racial justice issues like absolutely all all those things and i just yeah It's
1: there, and the the liturgy, the liturgical traditions, they've not shied away from these things,
0: right? Which I think sometimes today we've put everything in this little box. I mean, you talk about um, the fundamentalist versus modernist controversy a little Mm -hmm. bit in your book, and just and to me that's like putting things in a box, you know? Yes, a little bit. So we've like divided things instead of. Unifying things.
1: Yeah. And uh, that's—yeah, I mean, once you kind of dig into that, it helps you understand why Christians are so divided, especially uh in North America, over Uh these issues. The the fundamentalist, modernist, controversy stuff really kind of drove a deep, deep division. Yeah. Um, And and that's where, you know, I get at some things that I think can— one help bring Christians together, but also help create a deeper, more profound awareness of, you know, issues of justice, climate change, women's rights around the world. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the the rights of women and children are is, is a global issue of tremendous proportion that the church should care about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. you know, we believe. You know, I have. The, You know, uh, I have a whole section on creation care because God is the creator, and as Christians, we should—we're creatures created in the image of Mm -hmm.
0: God—not
1: at the expense of creation. We are a part of creation, right? Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anyway, no, no, no. I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, But yes, I totally agree. Like, we're not to have—we have dominion, but it's a, a caretaker type deal.
1: Yeah, it's like I think Christians have farmed—not even farmed out. um, We've given up our social responsibilities to secular movements and organizations. Like, oh, to care about creation means you're some crazy liberal. No, we should care about creation because God cares about creation. Oh, you know, justice issues just for this movement, it's a secular—no. The Bible actually—look at the concordance in the back of your Bible, and justice is everywhere.
0: For sure. And I think I want to, like, expand on the fundamentalist mo- modernist controversy because I read the book, so I understand it. But yep. just kind of wanted to have you explain it a little bit for people who are maybe a little lost right now and what that means.
1: Yeah. I mean, at the turn of the century, you had kind of growing, kind of leaning toward, you know, science. Um, th- there's a funny quote in a movie uh Nacho Libre where, you know, this one character says, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. You know, it's it's kind of a funny, but, you know, and you had this growing division and you had Christians kind of arguing, it's the Bible or nothing, essentially. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to mm-hmm. be right, right. black or white. Mm-hmm. It's either this or that. And they, you know, your fundamentalist movement created deep separations in the church and separated themselves from the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Scopes Monkey Trial was like Mm -hmm. the lightning rod the kind of the catalyst, if you will. And so what happens is you have Billy Graham and others come a little bit later on and kind of help start kind of this neo-evangelical movement that wasn't so fundamentalist, but it's still kind of coming out of Mm -hmm. that early fundamentalist movement, Mm -hmm. and... um, I think since then, the 60s were a very divisive era, obviously. I mean, we've—so, you know, I kind of trace in some of those chapters, like, how we got so divided Mm -hmm. and then how we can kind of make our way back.
0: Right, and using the liturgy to make our way back together again and bring hope.
1: Yeah, hope and yes. So I'm I'm hopefully, uh, you know, I believe we need a realistic hope. Yes. You know, yes. a realism. Like this isn't just blind optimism where, you know, can't we all just get along? No, there are deep issues we gotta work through. But I believe we are called as Christians to be uh, to have a realistic hope. Jesus had a realistic hope. The world was the world has fallen, yes. There is sin in the world. Um, there's crazy stuff happening in our lifetime. However, Jesus is still Lord and He calls us to to believe in the hope of the gospel. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Winfield, this conversation has been just a delight. I have one question that I ask everyone before I wrap up the show. Um, but before I do that, is there anything else you'd like to mention that we didn't already talk about?
1: No, that's it. No, I've enjoyed it. Always Always enjoy doing the podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much for highlighting the book. It's Again, it's something that I deeply believe in and I think is for everyone it's not just for those with a liturgical background you know i tell in the introduction i say you know it's going to make everyone uncomfortable Mm -hmm. you know it's that type of book that i hopefully stretches people from non-liturgical backgrounds to engage in the history of the church and their practices more and for those in liturgical traditions that may have forgotten the missional context of the liturgy so that that's kind of the hope yeah
0: No, I think after reading it, I think you did it. And so we'll definitely link to that in the show notes so that people can be sure to grab a copy if they'd like to do that. Thanks so much. So the one question we ask everyone that comes on the show, because the show is called The Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now?
1: It's a great question. You know, um, honestly, I've had a profound... This, this past year, really the past few months, um, the Lord's kind of just called me to slow down and to be mindful mm-hmm. and to really kind of be more present. To We live in a—because of our smartphones and our technology, we're living at, at a unsustainable speed of life. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I I think I kind of reached a point of burnout, and I feel like the Lord said, stop. And um, so I've been trying to just be present to my family. Uh, My oldest daughter just went to college last week, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. So I've got 18 year old, 16 year old, and 10 year old daughters, and they're all at important, different seasons. And I don't want to miss it. Yeah. And I'm giving up a lot of stuff to be present and to be mindful and Mm -hmm. to to live in the moment. And because we don't know, we don't have the promise of. Tomorrow we don't. I don't know. I might keel over with a heart attack this afternoon, God <laughs> forbid. But you know what? I'm gonna. I, I want to live in the moment, and I want to. I want to be with the people I'm with in that moment, and have no regrets. And yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, total so, sense. Yeah,
0: it's beautiful. Thank you, Winfield.
1: Thank you, Heidi. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Back anytime. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Winfield Bevins. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and that learning more about the history of the liturgy and what it means for us today will help you as you pursue God's mission for you and your story in the world. If you see Winfield or know him, be sure to thank him ever so much for taking the time to be part of the podcast today. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to pick up a copy of his new book, Liturgical Mission, The Work of the People for the Life of the World. As always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you go do something that helps you thrive.